On today's episode, I got the pleasure of talking to Arthur Griffiths, the former owner of the Vancouver Canucks and the Vancouver Grizzlies. We talked about some pretty interesting things and how he was able to scale from one sports team to two and a stadium. As well, we talk about some of the interesting ways that he used to generate income that you never would have thought of. I think you're going to get a lot out of this episode. Do you feel frustrated trying to scale your business online? Do you wish that there was an easier way? Imagine if you had a proven roadmap to take your online marketing from costing you to making you money. That's why we've created the Profitable E-Commerce Blueprint. We walk you through the same process that we use to run marketing campaigns online at scale for our clients. This blueprint isn't for brand new businesses without market proof. It isn't for businesses without long-term goals. This is for businesses who want to scale up their paid advertising and need a roadmap to profitability. If you want to save yourself the time, the money, and the energy, and learn from people who have already done it, go to mindfulmarketing.co slash blueprint and sign up today. Now for today's episode. So I have Arthur Griffiths uh, on the podcast today, Secrets to Scaling. I'm super looking forward to talking to you, Arthur. Um, Welcome here. Thank you very much, Jordan. Looking forward to it. Yeah, awesome. So, tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, you know, some people might not uh, might not know you, you, but you do have uh, quite an extensive um, history in business. Um, tell me well, some highlights, some lowlights. <laughs> sure, I, 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 uh, I guess the uh, extensive career also ex- uh, would reflect the fact that I'm uh, sixty plus years old. Yeah, <laughs> but <laughs> I go. grew up in a family business. Uh, yeah, I grew up in a family business. My father was in the broadcasting business, and uh, and uh, by that I mean uh, was a built a very large broadcasting company uh, that spanned the entire country of Canada and radio and television. Um, okay, what was, and so, what was that company? Uh, it was called WIC, W-I-C. Okay. It also had another name in its earlier life, which was called Western Broadcasting, but it was 15 uh, radio stations, 11 or 12 TV stations, satellite company, uh, pay-per-view channels, the uh, cartoon networks, and you know, a lot of the, some, you know, the various ancillary-related businesses. But you know, a core of it was radio and TV stations across the country. Wow. So, is that something that you um, came into then, when when you grew up, or like? Well, I was around it, of course. Uh, uh, I was around it, of course. Uh, I worked in uh, one of our stations, and these are summer jobs, right, between school and high school as well as in college. And so I worked uh, at a radio station in Winnipeg, uh, nothing major. I worked at a radio station in Vancouver called CKNW uh, yeah. for four years, again in the summer. Um, and then when I graduated high school, another one of my father's businesses that he acquired in the early 1970s was the Vancouver Canucks. Um, I, oh, okay. I so was, you had owned it for, uh, from the early seventies. Yes. From 1974. Okay. Was that the, like yeah. the franchise inception date? Like had he 1970 was the franchise. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It's, the team was created in 70 and, um, the owner of the team had some financial difficulties, I'll call it. Okay. And, uh, and had to sell the team and my father, uh, stepped up with a couple of friends and bought the team in 1974. Um, in 1980, I came to work for the team, uh, and okay. my job was selling tickets. Oh, okay. So you started uh, as like a, like a sales guy. Yep. Uh, I then also worked the game nights. I worked in the, uh, uh, in the uh, souvenir shop. Uh, oh, selling, okay. Uh, yeah. Um, nope. and I did that. 
Can, yeah. can you tell me about that, that dynamic a little bit? You working, like, were you working with your dad? No, no. My dad didn't work at the arena. He worked downtown in his corporate office and okay. his business is downtown. Uh, the Coliseum was my office. Uh, uh, so he wasn't physically on the site uh, except game nights. And so, you know, obviously it had its, uh, uh, you know, watchful eyes, I suppose. Uh, but the general manager of the team, his name was Jake Milford. Uh, he, uh, he invited me to work there uh, uh, after I graduated college, and I jumped at it. And little did I know what I was going to do, and nor did I really matter. I just wanted to work there, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, a year and a half later, I, uh, my father, uh, the, 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 there was a... Uh, the manager of the team became very ill and my father had a gentleman who worked for him that was sort of overseeing the operations and the hockey team, um, kind of multitasking. And my father said, you know, I think it's time that I have my own eyes and ears, uh, working, uh, for me as it relates to the Canucks. Yeah. So suddenly I get this, uh, you know, at age of 24, I get this promotion to a position that's quite wow. hard to, uh, even even verbalized now it was called an assistant to the chairman. I'm not, all I'm saying is is that it was um, an your, uncharted territory for everybody. And your your father was the chairman. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. Correct. Okay. Gotcha. So so at 24 you had to take on that kind of responsibility. Yes. Um, yeah. My my uh, approach was uh, uh, I'm not that title responsibility if you want to call it that. <laughs> had really one function, and that was to uh, obviously give my dad information that he may or not have elsewhere. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it was to give my dad this potential, um, uh, uh, what's the word? Um, how do I put this? Um, knowledge that the team to be successful would have one stop. Um, yeah. I was there to... Uh, and this is how I approached it as well is to, is to report back to the board, including my dad and say, listen, um, it, we need to spend here. We need to spend here. We need to uh, not spend here. Uh, it wasn't just money, but we need to revisit how we uh, are represented in the community on all aspects. And, and it was just a, I gotta say it, an eyes and ears scenario. Yeah. Um, and, and I, so when I started in that position, I went to the management, including the GM and, um, and, uh, the CFO and the head of marketing. And I said, listen, I'm not here to do your job at all. That's not it at all. I'm just here. You tell me what it is that, um, uh, what it is that I can do, uh, for you, uh, to make your job better. What, what, what is it you need to be successful? Yeah. And I'll go find it. Yeah. Um, and, um, uh, rather than, you know, in hindsight, I, I didn't think of it this way, but I, it, I was attempting not to be threatening, but really to be a team player and find out a way how we could all work together to make sure that we were all successful. Yeah. Um, so, as simple as that. so this, this, uh, the, the podcast here, it's, it's secrets to scaling. So what I like to kind of delve into with people is how did, so first of all, at that point, what were season ticket sales like? Like when you so 1980, um, I think we were probably season tickets. Well, I mean, it, 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 the, the Canucks have always been a, a big draw. So I'd have to say that our average attendance, because they're they're one and they're not necessarily the same thing, uh, obviously. But yeah. uh, we averaged uh, 95 percent, 96 percent sales. 
Okay. So uh, how do you, of which, you of which, like right. how, how do you take that? So, cause, cause I, I understand the Canucks have for the most part, like, you know, almost been sellouts for, for as long as I can yeah. remember. Um, but yeah. how do you take that and actually scale that? Um, cause I'm sure you like from the eighties till, till when, um, till when you guys sold, um, I can imagine there was a huge amount of scaling into different revenue streams. Like what, what did that all look like? Like, was that, was that you well, or was that, was that your, like a kind of yeah. collaborative effort? Yeah, it was collaborative, of course, and especially in the early days, because uh, what, what did I know about a rate flow sign? Uh, yeah. uh, we had some very successful uh, revenue streams that today, uh, one one evolved uh, in the 80s, and then the other one evolved, uh, actually uh, faded away. Uh, so in the evo- evolution of uh, revenue, when I started the team, there was no such thing as a rate board sign. Uh, okay, can, there was can, no, you explain, can you explain what that is? So around the arena on the, uh, you know, the, the rink boards, uh, you've oh, got oh, these gotcha. uh, banners now. Yeah. So all the rink board signage, there was very little backlit sign up in the, up in the arena bowls. Uh, so signage was, a was something that was just coming on stream, if you will. So we had okay. new revenues that were evolving as a direct result of that. Um, and they were, they were done and or managed up. You want to call it that from the team level at the beginning. Uh, oh, okay. like, uh, eventually, eventually they became, uh, in part league revenue. And then in some cases the arena. So it was a, a bit of a hybrid, but starting out in the early days, it was a, it was a brand new revenue stream. Nobody even knew what they could be, you know, how big they should be. What, uh, what, you know, is there a color? Do we have to worry about the clash of the uniforms? Yeah. And then of course the <laughs> signage in the ice, uh, within the yeah. ice, there's yeah, signage yeah, yeah. in the ice, uh, that, uh, manifested itself in particularly when people started to name the arenas for multi-million dollar contracts. So they said, well, one of the ways we're going to give our, uh, you know, our, our name of our arena, some high profile is to make sure that the center ice or face off docks or whatever the case may be, have some science. So it's a, again, it's all brand new, it's new territory. Yeah. Um, and, so, uh, and, and, but we had rink, we had, we had a program sales. We had, we had a, the, what I would call a, the game program every night was brand new. That was a huge program. We would sell, we'd sell about six to 7,000 a night. Now, nobody in North America sold that many per seat. In a, in oh, okay. A, in so a, you actually sell the, the program itself wasn't like a yeah. giveaway. It was like, like something that you actually sold no. because it had that much. Oh, it was like, a real collector. I mean, it was, yeah. Oh, it was a real collector's. Uh, 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 so definitely. Uh, that's that's uh, amazing because I can imagine that some of the teams were probably just giving that away. Hey. Uh, well, yes, um, virtually. Uh, but if they weren't giving it away, they weren't selling many. Yeah. Uh, our content, our editorial, our our. Uh, so we would we 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 had, we had a new program every night. A new cover, uh, new advert, and of course we sold the advertising within that program. So it was, it was very, very successful. It really, really was. I mean, uh, I mean, I remember going to the printers sometimes because I had to copy the blue line, the copy, and I would race it down to the printers to make sure that it was printed in my early job. Yeah, um, yeah. So I, I had some firsthand knowledge of how that went through, and you'd see the copy, and it's not like anything else. I mean, it's really quite quite a new experience. Uh, so that was a very, very, uh, uh, lucrative thing. And of course we had the new, uh, you know, souvenirs, uh, the, you know, the swag 
um, in, the, in the retail store, all those revenues were there with radio and television, uh, you know, um, so within, and then of course our ticket sales, um, which was predominantly the vast majority of our revenue. Yeah. What, what was your biggest struggle in, in that time from like, uh, from, from the time that you took over till the time that you guys sold? Oh gosh. The biggest struggle. Yeah. Um, well, like what was the thing that kept you up at night? Well, if there's one thing I guess that'd have to be, it would have to do with the, um, uh, the uncontrollable, uh, payroll. Okay. Because compete, of, because of the rising see, salary. Yeah. Yeah, you, you seemed like, it, it, and then eventually there's another twist to the same thing, another twist to which I'll explain. But the first part was just that you, you know, in order to become the best you could be, you had to spend. And yeah. that would seem to be the only way to become good or very good is to spend money. Uh, always, not always the case, but you did not spend the most, but you certainly had to spend a lot. And then you got this very finite revenue, which was, by the way, in Canadian dollars. Yes. Yes. That must have been a huge issue over the years, hey? Well, sure. Because as it is today, uh, our, uh, although not nearly as bad as it was. So in, in evolution of the same revenue stream, what happened is that the revenues uh, were Canadian dollars, tickets, yeah. and our expenses were U.S. players' salaries. And so all those two items, uh, they're definitely related. One pays for the other. Um the one item, which is, of course, the, the salaries are going up and uncontrollable. Uh, you know, yeah. 50, well, you can just not spend and potentially not get the best player. So yeah. there's that issue or lose or lose a good player. The yeah. second is, is that you're, you're disparaging dif your differentiator between the revenue of the uh, ticket sales and your payroll is yeah. a U.S. dollar spread as well. So you're, yeah. hitting, you're being hit twice. Yeah. Uh, so those were the, those, that item and that area, if you will, uh, was the revenue and the expense side. Those, that's what kept me awake and was the biggest challenge for sure. Five yeah. yeah, that totally makes sense because those are the things that you have zero control over. Right. So, so going, yeah. going back now, like let's, let's say that, you know, 2019 Arthur is going to go back to the eighties. What would you have changed? Is there anything that you feel like you could have had control over in that? Uh, not in the eighties. Um, I, I think the eighties were, uh, uh, you know, we had some pretty good success in the early eighties with the t run to the finals, which was really magical, but it was, it was a, I would call a bit of a blip. Uh, we set in motion, uh, even going back to the seventies, we set in motion to be a team that was going to look all over the world for the best talent. Yeah. And so I wouldn't change this at all, but we, we moved it clearly. We moved into the direction of finding the best Swedes, the best Finns, the best Russians, and the best Czechoslovakian hockey players, and we succeeded. Yeah, uh, as the as the story would go. The biggest challenge in the 1980s probably was the fact that we were existing somewhat barely in a public arena, um, not conveniently located to the core of our customers in East Vancouver. Oh, okay. Um, the PME. So you, where where was the core of your customers in downtown? Yeah, absolutely, and they always are, and it will always be for every team in the world. Yeah. Um, and I say this because if you think about uh, what it is that people are buying, uh, or frankly, what it is they intend to do when they buy their tickets, they they they, they expect they make a night of it, yeah, uh, or or a day of it. And so by that I mean is is that they want to go and have a drink 
before and after a meal before or after uh and and or they want to walk from their office uh, or transit so in east vancouver there was very little of any of that if virtually nothing yeah uh, there's no transit uh there's buses and uh, there's no uh restaurants and bars in the neighborhood there's certainly no corporate offices in the neighborhood yeah and uh so it just it absolutely uh wasn't going to work so that was the biggest the challenge, which is why I set my sights on changing the direction of the team in that respect. Yeah. So you uh, was now was that you that built uh, at the time? I guess it was GM Place. Yes. Um, so how like how did that all come about? So in the late 1980s, uh, I sat down with the board, like 1988, 89. I sat with the board of the, of the team and I said, listen, uh, I'm, you know, by this point, I, four or five years, I've been sitting at governor's meetings in hockey. And I said, we, we are only going to succeed long-term here if we take, we, we take on our uh, project, uh, very ambitious, but to build our own arena. Uh, nobody believed that uh, uh, it was necessary. The board uh, was happy to be in a public facility to a certain extent. So it was then, uh, but I made the argument. I, I, I explained to them that uh, if we didn't, uh, in a foreseeable period, you know, four or five years, we might have to move the team or sell it. Okay. Um, and, and it was just uh, it, 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 incapable of charging, I'd call it appropriate pricing for the entertainment value in East Vancouver. Yeah. Um, it's just what's going to, uh, you know, wasn't going to work. So what we did, though, is we, uh, and I was fortunate enough, I sat with, uh, they say, a lot of owners and other teams around North America and I, in hockey, and I would, we, we there was a committee I uh, became a member of, and, and we brainstormed um, what an arena should have, where it should be located, what were the yeah. important physical assets, attributes internally and externally, and last but not least, how to finance it. And so that's yeah. what... Yeah. Uh, that must have been uh, uh, a huge undertaking. Well, it, it, recognizing where the board was at, uh, I, I initially set in motion the uh, pro, pro, uh, plan, if you want to call it that, to buy the team myself, which I did so with my sister eventually, uh, and therefore alleviate the board from the responsibility or the obligation or even the burden of some sort for the arena. So I privately financed it, brought in a partner, yeah. um, but, but it was all private money. Uh, it was... Um, the arena was $165 million Canadian, all in, everything, yeah. cost, hard, soft. And uh, we opened the doors in 1995, and uh, with uh, at that point, with two, two sports teams, of course, the NBA. Yeah, yeah. So, so what, was the, what was the thought with that, with you bringing them to town? Was well, it just that there, well, was a, there was a good opportunity at the time to, to bring a franchise? Well... In in my in my uh, term uh, time uh, early time in hockey, I I I was convinced that what we were as owners were uh, we we were selling uh, not a hockey game not a basketball game we were selling entertainment yeah yeah and to the extent that the best entertainment and you know proven to be the case but it, it, the best entertainment that I could see that would be compatible in a brand new arena that you're spending 165 million dollars on was basketball it was a no brainer. Now, how did it come about was that Toronto was making overtures to the NBA to get an an NBA expansion team. And I said, well, wait a second. We have an arena. It's under construction. You can come and look at it. We have a proven track record with hockey. 
We have overlapping ownership at hockey with basketball, so I thought we had an in there. And we persuaded, is the best way I would put it, the NBA to grant his franchise. We'll get right back to the episode. But first, do you feel frustrated trying to scale your business online? Do you wish that there was an easier way? Imagine if you had a proven roadmap to take your online marketing from costing you to making you money. That's why we've created the Profitable E-Commerce Blueprint. You can find out more at mindfulmarketing.co slash blueprint. Now, back to today's episode. Hey, I, I want to talk, uh, this is a, a, you know, a marketing podcast here. Um, I, I want to talk about some of the, um, over the years, some of the best um, uh, marketing campaigns or ones that you can remember um, uh, with, with either one of those teams. Um, like, what's the stuff that really turned the dial marketing-wise for you guys? Um, well, marketing campaigns, well, I... Uh, or just I in general, I mean, even if it was like a long running sort of thing, like what, like what really turned the dial for you guys as far as your marketing is uh, concerned? It might, not, it might not be come top of mind to some people if you're asking them the same question that we're involved. I have to believe that what we tried to do and we did succeed and they still do uh, is that we recognize that our sports customers, our fans were much more than who came to our game. More importantly, we had a quasi-responsibility and an opportunity to be something different than just a hockey team that wins and loses and has fans and loses fans and uh, sells jerseys. Uh, and that was to resonate with the community. Yeah. Well, we, we, in the very early uh, mid-1980s, we created a charity. Okay. Uh, it, was called, it was called the Canuck Foundation, um, yeah. and we, we raised dollars, and we gave them to children's charities. Uh, in the late 80s, uh, we became friends with, uh, early 90s, we became friends with, or I did, with a, uh, an oncology nurse. And she had this vision of building a hospice for children. Mm. It'll all, I'll tie it all back. But so what I believe was our greatest uh, marketing slash core value and, and asset is our ability to create a meaningful cause that all people, whether they be players, their wives, uh, yeah. uh, employees, fans, media could c- come to recognize as a truly inherent part of and value add for being a supporter of the team. And I think that would probably, hands down, the, you know, uh, people ask me, well, you know, what were my, my highs and lows? And more importantly, what was my biggest? I'd have to be honest with you, I have to say the end results, and I'm looking at a painting of it right now is a creation of Canuck Place uh, mm. with the support of all of our fans and players. Yeah. Yeah, it really, it really produces that goodwill. I, I mean, first of all, it's just, it's just so much good that that is done for those mm-hmm. families who are in, like, mm-hmm. incredible need. Um, and oh, then it produces uh, so much goodwill towards, um, towards the team. I, I totally, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's a great answer. Yeah, yeah it's... Um, uh, you know, I, I'm looking around some memorabilia in my office, and so I've actually got that, uh, as I say, a painting on my on my wall, so I can see that. Yeah, Connect Place. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. Um, we just have a couple more minutes left. I'd love to hear about what you're up to right now. Sure. Um, as of uh, February of 2019, I was asked to join some friends and some colleagues of mine to. 
be the CEO of a private company, um, which was creating a footprint in the uh, hemp and cannabis growing business okay. across the world. Um, my my uh, reaction was, I'm very interested, but I'm not interested if it's North America, only because uh, I think it's a crowded space in North America, and it's very, um, you know, you can swing for the fences, and you can really, you know, strike out. So I believed that the opportunity, and one which I was fully on board for, was to create a company where we grow, and we do, Croatia, Italy, South Africa, uh, and eventually, hopefully, South America and other other markets. So my company is called World Farms. Okay. We're currently in what what's called a RTO, a reverse takeover of a pro. Okay. Uh, uh, currently, yeah, and we will be public uh, sometime in November, um, and our farms will will be uh, up and running by then. Okay. Wow. So is is that a big hassle, especially like working in all of those different places? Um, those have to be like a bunch of different laws that you're having to, to wrangle. Laws, partners, language. Uh, I travel, uh, 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 I travel the world. Um, I'm up most nights in any case. Um, we have, uh, what do you call it? Um, you know, I, I got up at four this morning. I think I went to bed at 11. And that's not uncommon for me. It's not a hassle as much as long as you enjoy it, and I do. Yeah, uh, it has its challenges, but what doesn't? So yeah. I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not afraid uh, to uh, take it on. But I, uh, and I knew that that was part of it, and I'm used to that. I, I say I, and I lived in England. Uh, I, I enjoy the the cultural diversity of what we're up to, and more importantly, um, honestly, you know, Jordan, here's. Here's the nub of it, and here's why I said I wanted to do it, and more importantly, why I was willing to do it, is that what we produce by way of this plant will make someone's life better every day. Mm. Whether it be the oils or whether it be the creams or whether it be the sprays or whatever the way you want to ingest it, uh, because it's medicinal, it's beneficial, whether it be sleep, whether it be depression, uh, arthritis, all of the things that, that are anecdotally available to prove that we've got this, um, uh, you know, again, like I say, we change people's lives. And it's, um, it's pretty cool to know that that's what you can do. Every day, including this morning, I'm talking to people who are saying they're taking it for this and they're taking it for that. And I go, I mean, and, and, they, and they've said, you know, the greatest example of all is an ex-hockey player that uh, uh, I've spoken with who said, I would not be alive if it wasn't for this plant. Wow. Wow, and so and this yeah. is mostly a, a CBD product. Is that is that right? C, CBD, uh, and in each country, when we can get to that point, we can get THC. Um, okay. Yes, CBD isolate um, yeah. is the end result. But we grow and we extract. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's yeah. there's starting to be incredible, like not just anecdotal evidence, but there's like there there's really starting to actually be a ton of evidence um, for yeah. for CBD, right, and for all of the effects. Yeah. Uh, all of the yes, like sir. great ways that it can work. So that's absolutely that's awesome. Uh, I'm going to ask you just a, a couple more questions here, Arthur. I uh, really appreciate your time. Sure. Um, my so my if, pleasure. If there was um, I, there, there's one thing I, I like to tell everyone. So I, I was a paramedic for a lot of years, and I still actually work part time as a paramedic. And um, sure. and I I'll ask people who are usually over 70 or, or, or 80. And if I really, really like them, I'll always ask them, 
you know, just, can you distill down just one thing that you would tell me? And the, and the, and the answers are always incredible. Like the, the people who really get it and who are at that age and who are still like full of joy and, and still living a life, like the answers are incredible and they're usually really simple. Um, so anyway, so that's my question to you. Not that you're in your seventies or eighties yet, but um, <laughs> if you had just, just one piece of wisdom for us, what would it be? Um, I learned a long time ago from this person, this friend of mine's sister, uh, who was um, suffering from cancer. Uh, and eventually uh, she passed. Yeah. And every day I think when I look at the stress or I look at what might be bothering me, I think about her. Mm. And I didn't know her. I met her, but I didn't know her per se. Yeah. And she said, and I believe that I do this and I tried to do this. My, my philosophy in life is I choose to be happy every day. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's really, it's, you, you said it's simple. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it is. I can get angry. I can get a bit sad. I can get a bit depressed. I can get, uh, uh, you know, w- what about, but you don't have to look very far to find an example. You just walk down the street and go, my God, am I lucky? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great advice. And, uh, thank you. Yeah. It's, uh, it's easy. It's easy to be, uh, uh, and it's understandable. And I've been there, uh, to be angry and frustrated and sad. But if I don't, if I don't look forward, <laughs> so someone's going to run me over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, Arthur, before we wrap up, uh, where can people, um, find you? Is there sure. a, a uh, website? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'll, I'll give it to you. So the corporate website is uh, info, I-N-F-O, at world, W-R-L-D-F-A-R-M-S-C-O-R-P.com, worldfarmscorp.com. Worldfarmscorp.com. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I really, really appreciate you um, being with me today and uh, giving up your time. Um, Yeah. And I think my pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Secrets to Scaling Online. If you're loving what you're hearing, subscribe to our podcast and share this with a friend. No, seriously, share it with a friend. No, if you don't, I'm going to find you and I'm going to make you profitable. Got it? No, seriously, 